We've been going through kind of a heavier section, um, one that's uh, got some really, we dial us back just a hair, I'm sorry, Jared, one that's, uh, one that's really loaded with a lot of incredible truth that's really important we wrap our minds around and know so we can present the true Jesus to our world. But let's open up with prayer and just uh, ask him uh, to lead our study this morning. Gracious God, we come to your word understanding that it's from you. Uh, Lord, that you, you preserved it just as you promised to. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we view it as our authority. Lord, we're not here for opinions on your word. We just want to know what it says. We want to know what you're saying through it and uh, how you want to use it in our lives today. So I pray that we would come with that heart. Uh, teach us, Lord, and uh, may we walk out of here to change people. In your name we pray. Amen. John chapter 5 is, is where we... Uh, where we left off at verse 30. And this is a pretty heavy section, so I, w- I needed to divide it up. Um, and we're going to take kind of a bigger, uh, probably a bigger chunk. I could divide this up, but I kind of want to capture it all at once. We looked at all the claims of Jesus last week, and now we're going to look at all the, um, the proof this week of every claim that he made. Open up with a story I came across about a young engineer. There was a young engineer who was sent to Ireland by his company to work at a new electronics plant. It was a two-year assignment that he had accepted because this would enable him to earn the money to finally marry his long-term girlfriend. She also had a job near her home in Tennessee, and their plan was to save up and then pool their resources together for a down payment on a house. So they corresponded often over this uh, two-year period. But as the lonely weeks went by, she began expressing doubts that he was being true to her, exposed as he was to all these Irish women. (laughs) The young engineer wrote back, declaring with some passion that he was paying absolutely no attention to the local girls. He did say, I admit that sometimes I'm tempted, but I fight it. I'm keeping myself only for you. And the next mail, the, the engineer received a package, and it contained a note from his girl with the harmonica. She said, I'm sending this to you. So you can learn to play it and have something to do in the evening to keep your minds off those girls. (laughs) The engineer replied in his next correspondence, thank you for the harmonica. I'm practicing every night and thinking of you. At the end of his two-year stint, the engineer was transferred back to company headquarters and he took the first plane to Tennessee to be reunited with the girl. Her whole family was there with her to greet him, and as he rushed forward to embrace her, she held up her restraining hand and said sternly, Just a minute there, Billy Bob. Before any serious kissing and hugging starts, let me hear you play that harmonica. (laughs) She says, I hear what you're saying. Now I want you to prove it to me. (laughs) I want you to prove it. As Jesus last week laid out some incredibly bold claims concerning his identity as God, he's about to now prove it. He's about to prove it. He claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be judge, which is a title that was only for God and God alone. He claimed to have life in himself, meaning he's never been created. He's always existed, something that can only be true of God. He claimed to be worthy of honor and respect and worship. He claimed to have the same power and position as God. And by this time, the religious leaders were infuriated and ready to stone him at his blasphemous claims. But then he says, he goes on in verses 30 to 47 and say, now let me prove it to you. Let me lay it out before you. 
So we're going to look at bold claims of Jesus, part two, examining the evidence. We're going to kind of compare a lot of the evidence that he provides to what you'd see in a common courtroom setting today. But Jesus offers four pieces of clear evidence that speak to his identity. He didn't just make these claims, these empty claims, and then walk away. He made these claims and then provided the proof and the evidence to back them up. So we're going to pick up at John um, chapter 5 and verse 30, and we're going to read uh, the first five verses together, uh, verse 35. Jesus says, I can do nothing of myself, but as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Uh, there is another who bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Uh, you have sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive the testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. And he, uh, for John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. As Jesus opens up in his kind of his opening statement, his arguments to begin defending who he was, he references the Old Testament law concerning witnesses. He says, I can declare who I am to you, but I, can, I know already you're not going um, to accept that in and of itself. Not that Jesus needed those other witnesses. His testimony was sufficient. <laughs> He's God in the flesh. He doesn't need man to validate who he is. He is God, and um, that's really all there is to it. But knowing that who they were and what they would be looking for, he says, I'm going to provide you with the evidence that you want that backs up who I am. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, as the law is being delivered, 19 and then verse 15, this is what it says concerning witnesses. One witness shall not rise up against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he has committed. But by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So according to the law, you needed, you could go and you could speak on your own behalf, but um, really what you needed was other witnesses to come and verify what you were saying. And so Jesus, knowing that these people live by the letter of the law, said, I'm going to bring in these other witnesses uh, to testify as to who I am. And so he brings in four uh, key people or witnesses, things that witness to his true identity. And remember, a witness, this comes up frequently in the book of John, is someone who by verbal explanation uh, shares what they have seen or heard or experienced firsthand. And that's exactly what Jesus begins to do. He begins to pull in witnesses, uh, and he's going to pull in four that back up his identity. The first thing we're going to look at this morning is the witness of John the Baptist. The witness of John the Baptist. If you've been with us through our early study, we've already encountered John on many occasions. He was the faithful forerunner and the first thing we're going to look at this morning is that he was the fulfillment calling Israel to prepare to receive the promised Messiah. They had the prophecy from Isaiah, I believe also in Malachi, talking about the fact that there would be a forerunner that came before Jesus. Since the last prophet had spoken, we're looking at a substantial amount of hundreds of years that were seemingly silent. And so they're kind of waiting for this forerunner who would come before Jesus and let us know he's coming. And John the Baptist bursts on the scene and is very clearly the one that was uh, spoken about. He was a voice calling out in the wilderness, which is just exactly what was prophesied. He, he ate locusts and wore, wore uh, animal skins. He was kind of a wild man. <laughs> 
That was exactly what they were told to look for. So when John came, that is why the Jews began pouring out to, to greet him. That's why so many came to learn from him, why they were baptized. Even the religious leaders themselves came to investigate. And they came away with the conclusion, this must be the one that we're looking for. So they saw him as the fulfillment. And he became a local celebrity uh, almost instantaneously. But as you watch, uh, they, they came to him, they understood who he was. So Jesus says, if he's the forerunner, if he's the fulfillment of prophecy, why don't you listen to what he says about me? <laughs> we see, secondly, that he revealed the true identity of Jesus Christ. Flip back to John chapter 1, verses 36 and 37. This is John speaking. He said, And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Or John, although he became a local celebrity, he was... His life was never about him. It was about proclaiming the Messiah. And John knew exactly who Jesus was. And as Jesus walked by, he says to his disciples, you know the one I've been telling you about? There he is. <laughs> and they left him to go and follow Jesus. John knew who Jesus was. So here we have the prophesied forerunner, the one who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah, the one who to whom it would be revealed whom the Messiah is. And we didn't see John identifying three or four different people saying, I think it's him or I think it's him. He says, it's Jesus. That's him. Go follow him. And thirdly, he saw the Holy Spirit descend and remain upon Jesus. Back in John chapter 1, verses 32 to 34, he provides his testimony. It says, And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained upon him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the Father had already revealed to John, this is going to be the telling moment. When you baptize the Messiah, you will see the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and it will remain upon him. So John, that was only true of one person, and that's Jesus Christ. So John knew who Jesus was. What's interesting is although they accepted John as a prophet and of this forerunner, they ultimately rejected his message and what John said about Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that so like our world? I'll take the bits and pieces of Jesus that I like, that are comfortable with me, <laughs> Are comfortable to me, but the stuff I don't like, I'm going to reject. I'm going to pick and choose. But as we looked at last week, Jesus presents himself in such a way that you either embrace him as God and Messiah, or you dismiss him as a raving lunatic or the greatest deceiver in all of history. Because he's so clear in his statements about himself that it really leaves no room for error. He's one or the other. He's God and Messiah and Savior of the universe, or he's crazy. He's God and Messiah of the universe, or He's the greatest deceiver to ever live. <laughs> but you know what? It's a lot like people in His day, a lot of people look and say, oh, He did good things. He was a good teacher, a great example. <laughs> they looked at John the same way. Oh, he's that prophet we've been looking for. But yet they ignored His message. And here is John uh, identifying Him. He said, here's eyewitness testimony. One of the strongest proofs you can bring in a court case is eyewitness testimony. <laughs> you can say, this is what I so clearly saw. 
And I love John had no trouble pointing people to Jesus Christ. I've shared before, but when my brother, and I, I have a younger brother who's just a little, he's about two years younger than me. And we were younger, we looked, um, quite a, we looked enough alike that if you didn't know us well, you could mistake us for each other. My brother would often get up and do special music during our church service there at our home church. And sometimes afterwards, some of the newer people would come up and thank me for the job I did and for sharing that special. <laughs> they would confuse us frequently. Well, I knew that I was not the one that they were looking for. So I was always point them to my brother. No, you're mistaking me for my brother. There he is. And then they'd go to him. John did the very same thing. He said, I, I am not the light, but I'm bearing witness to the light. In fact, I love the way he's described here. He's a bright and shining lamp who was fueled, like, just like a lamp that's filled with oil. The Holy Spirit signifies oil in God's word. He was full of the Holy Spirit. And as a result, he burned brightly. He was a bright light and witness to Jesus Christ. But as they came to him, he had no trouble deflecting them and saying, no, I'm not, I'm just bearing witness to the light. He's the light. So the first witness is John the Baptist, and he very clearly identifies Jesus, Jesus as the Messiah, as the one they're looking for. He first brings about eyewitness testimony. Now, I, I love what Jesus says here. He says, you know, I don't... I don't have to receive this from you, but nonetheless, I'm going to share these things with you. So if you won't listen to me, at least listen to John so that you can hear the message and understand who I am and be saved. He says, that's why I'm telling you these things. You know, they were willing to rejoice in him for a season. <laughs> they were excited. They poured out to meet him, to learn from him and be baptized by him. But later, a short time later, actually while Jesus is talking here, John's been ar arrested by Herod Antipas who was, uh, who was a ruler and put him in prison. And the Jews kind of, uh, they basically just let him go and said, uh, we don't really care at this point. We didn't like the message and the sharp rebukes that he was giving us. So they just kind of passed him off, made no effort to free him, and John was eventually beheaded. You know, they, they liked the fact that the forerunner was here. They were excited, but when they didn't like the message, they turned their back on him. <laughs> Sounds a lot like what they would do to Jesus. So Jesus first lays out John the Baptist. He says, here's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, and you understand that, so why aren't you listening to him? Secondly, he goes on to talk about the works that he displayed or the miracles. Verse 36, but I have greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do, they bear witness of me and that the Father has sent me. The Father has sent me. And the works that he had done, and he had done a lot of them already. The last time he was in Jerusalem, he had driven the money changers out of the temples, and then he had gone, gone on to uh, perform miracles for a period of time, and many people had witnessed them firsthand, watching him heal. But I love what he says here. He again talks about that unity and that unique relationship with the Father. He says, the Father has given me these works to do. What is he talking about? What we need to understand about Jesus is that Although being fully God from eternity past, when he came down to earth as a human being, he willingly chose to lay aside some rights. Being God, he had right, uh, rights to do uh, as he wished according to his own character and will, but of course he always worked in conjunction with the Father. But in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8, through 8, it said, he did not consider this equality with God as something to be held on to. I mean, he willingly laid aside some things, not that he ceased to be God, but he laid aside a few things. One of those was his visible glory. 
meaning you would look at him and you wouldn't think that's God. <laughs> in fact, it says he wasn't even an attractive man. <laughs> there was nothing that would naturally draw you to him. But also the independent use of his attributes. Being God from eternity past, he chose to lay aside the independent use of his attributes. And so as Jesus uses his attributes and his power to perform miracles, it was always in line with the Father's will. And he refused to do anything outside of it. Remember when the Satan said, hey, turn these stones into bread. I know you're starving. He says, no. <laughs> Why? It wasn't the Father's will, so I'm not going to attempt to use my power independently. I think you even see times where he asks questions like, who touched me when the woman touched his robe? Or when he says, no one knows the time or the day or the hour but the Father. He's saying in those moments, he said, I'm not going to use these attributes. I'm going to use them only as the Father sees fit according to his plan. <laughs> so Jesus, he had a limitless resource for his power within his humanity. He voluntarily let voluntarily laid aside them. I love it. He said, not only did he come down and lay those things aside, he came down as a servant. He didn't just come down, he came all the way down. <laughs> he came down as a bondservant who came to serve the sinful human race and to give his life as a ransom for us. Incredible. What an incredible God we serve. But as we look at the works themselves, secondly, he displayed the heart of God and the reason that he came within those works. He shows us the heart of God and the reason that he came. Jesus did not use his works to become a, or these miracles that he was performing to become rich and famous. <laughs> he had the power to heal anyone of any ailment. He could have set up his own little clinic there and said, bring your sick and all the money you got. <laughs> he could have become rich and powerful in a very quick or short period of time, but he was not interested in that. In fact, he'd say, birds of nests, Boxes have holes and I have nowhere to lay my head. <laughs> he truly was a servant. You know, so many others and false teachers um, that have arisen through the years and were arising in those days, they would, uh, they would seek to deceive and gain a following so that they could um, take advantage of people. In fact, Peter identifies some in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. It says, many will follow their destructive ways, and by their covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. He goes on to talk about how their motive is greed, how many people try and deceive to lead astray in order to uh, fulfill their own greedy desires and needs. There wasn't an ounce of greed in anything that Jesus did. Though he was fully deserving of, uh, of praise. He's fully deserving of a massive following and he's fully deserving of compensation. <laughs> That's not why he did it. And you look at the majority of his miracles where they're meeting the sick, the lame, the hurting. We see the heart and compassion of God in Jesus Christ. Let's look at not only the, the miracles which speak to his power, but look at the types of miracles that he did and the needs that he met. How many other how many ordinary men, if they were given that kind of power, would then abuse it and use it for their own gain? <laughs> How many get a platform today, and the first thing they do is they go out and uh, they, they hoard everything they can for themselves, they seek their own glory, their own praise, and fall into all kinds of sin? <laughs> that happens all the time when we see people kind of become uh, famous overnight. Jesus 
with what uh, showed the compassion and the heart of God in, he, in uh, meeting the hurting and those who were struggling right where they were at and healing them. But point C, ultimately they showed beyond a reasonable doubt that he was the Messiah. He was able to do things that no one in history <laughs> was able to do. And the greater works were still yet to come. Now there's those who performed miraculous works in God's power before, but had never claimed to be the Messiah. <laughs> those in the Old Testament, people like Moses, were able to part the Red Sea in God's power. But here we have someone claiming to be the Messiah and then backing it up with incredible works. Now let's look at, flip over to John chapter 11, verse 47. What we're going to see is that these works were never refuted. They didn't then come to him and say, yeah, <laughs> you say you've done these things, but we don't believe you. Listen to what the leader said about it. Verse 47. It said, then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. And if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away uh, our place as a nation. <laughs> That was their greatest fear, was a loss of power and position. They said, we can't deny what he's doing. We just got to figure out how to get around it. They were never coming to Jesus to, to search and see if he was really the Messiah. They'd already made their minds up and said, we've already chosen to reject him. So regardless of the signs we see, we're going to dismiss him. But everything that Jesus did showed us that he was God in the flesh. They could go and interview the people, like the man who was lame for 38 years. Unable, his legs were literally paralyzed. He was unable to move. They could have interviewed his family. They, they saw him for themselves. They saw the transformation. <laughs> Yet their hearts were so hard that they did not believe. But it, the Lord in many instances used the transformation of, of people and sent them to be a living testimony. And he still does that today. As he has transformed your lives and left you here to be a light. He wants to use your lives as evidence as you allow him to work in and through you to draw people to himself. I remember a guy, a good friend of my dad's name, Pat. Pat was, uh, he was one of those guys that prior to Christ, he, was, he ran in the rough crowd. He was a fighter. He was known as, uh, he was known around the local bar as the guy who would get in a fight just about every Saturday night. That was Pat. There was a lot of people, when, when Pat first walked through the doors at church, a lot of people were kind of, they almost tensed up a little bit like, oh, Pat's here. <laughs> they didn't know how to respond. But as Pat, uh, as Pat would hear the good news of the gospel, give his life to Jesus Christ, he would be miraculously changed. Lord began changing him from the inside out. And the Lord would use him to reach out to many of his acquaintances and friends, people that knew him before, and they're like, what happened to Pat? We've got to come see for ourselves what in the world has happened. <laughs> and Jesus would heal these people and send them out, and many times they would bring back people to Jesus. Say, wow, we can see the transformation. What happened here? <laughs> the works that he displayed, the lives that so many lives were physically transformed and they spoke, uh, they spoke as to what Jesus, who Jesus was and what, what he was here to do. You see, the offer of salvation was valid, just as valid to these religious leaders, but their hearts were so hardened that they ignored the evidence that Jesus was laying out before them. 
You know, this is a lot like video surveillance today. If you go commit a crime and they have your, your mug right there on a video camera showing that you broke in, that you were there, that's pretty hard to refute. That's why they gave up trying to refute the fact that he had done these works. They're just trying to figure out how they could extinguish him and get him out of the way. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Point three, we're going to look at the weight of the Father's authentication. The weight of the Father's authentication. Verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. And you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Uh, but you also do not have his word sorry, abiding in you. Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Jesus begins to talk about it. He says, I know you'll listen to the Father. And the Father in so many ways has authenticated me. Do you remember what got this whole thing started? What got this whole debate on blasphemy started? Well, skip back a little bit to verse 16. He said, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus um, because he had done works on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him him because he had not only broken the sabbath but he said that god was his father making himself equal with god jesus used the personal pronoun he says my father and which no jew would dare say because they knew that and in saying that you were claiming equality with god but in luke chapter 3 verse 22 as jesus is getting baptized not only does the spirit descend like a dove but the heavens open up and the father said this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased the same personal pronoun he uses to say, yes, this is true of our relationship. This is my beloved son. He'd use the same thing at the uh, transfiguration. He did not hesitate to claim Jesus as equally God. So the father authenticated. said, if you're not going to trust me, at least trust the expert, the one that you know is true. So often in a court case, they'll bring in that expert witness, someone who can, maybe an expert witness in handwriting, or someone who can verify and say, yes, the fingerprints are a match, or the dental, the teeth are a match. This is the same person. The DNA is consistent. They'll bring in that expert witness. I like watching a show, uh, or I catch some of these shows that are based out of pawn shops. And one particular that's located in Vegas, they, they get a lot of unique items. And sometimes people will come in with some pretty bold claims. They'll come in and say, this is Elvis's guitar. And look, he signed it right here. They said, before we go spending thousands of dollars, let me bring in an expert. And they'll bring in an expert who will know kind of what guitars he played and what his signature looked like, and they'll examine it. And sometimes they'll come away and say, I'm sorry, it's a fraud, which makes their their relic uh, seemingly worthless. But if they come and authenticate it, if they come and authenticate it, the value then of, uh, of what they're claiming, um, the value is extremely more so. He says, here's my expert witness. <laughs> it's God the Father. <laughs> Listen to what he has said about me. Secondly, Jesus was fulfilling the rescuing mission of the Father. He says, the Father who sent me, uh, you have neither... I'm sorry, verse 36. The very works that I do, they bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Jesus was truly the God-man on a mission, on a rescuing mission. In fact, look at John, flip over to John 17 and verse 4. John 17, verse 4. It says, 
I have glorified you on earth, and I have finished the work that you have given me to do. This is Jesus speaking to the Father. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had before the world was. Jesus says, he had work to do. And as he continued to, in his ministry, these signs and wonders continued to follow him. In fact, they got even greater. Pretty soon he's going to be feeding uh, at least 5,000 people, probably more like 10 to 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish. We'll get to that next week. Soon he's going to be raising people from the dead. And he's saying, you can see that the Father is behind and uh, in perfect conjunction with this mission because you see the works continue to accompany me. Every miracle showed that he was in the midst of the Father's will. And finally, the cross and the resurrection would be the completion of the mission. But Jesus had to validate every claim. Don't you think that God the Father, as he's watching this take place, if Jesus was a fraud, that at some point he would be exposed? (laughs) Did you know that there were false messiahs that had cropped up throughout history that Israel had believed for a time, time and time again? But every one of them would be exposed because eventually they couldn't meet the criteria of the Messiah. They couldn't keep up the facade. But here is Jesus, and the, the works, as he's making bolder claims, the works keep getting greater and greater, like things the world has never seen. So they validate everything that he's saying. He's saying, listen, I am clearly in line with, with the Father and what he's doing. You can see the evidence right here before you. And point C, in the fulfillment of every reference in Scripture concerning the Messiah. <laughs> Think about that. They believed that God was sovereign. They believed that God the Father was in control of the universe. If that were true, then why would he allow some imposter to fulfill every prophecy, major and minor, every reference and picture concerning the Messiah? (laughs) But as you look through Jesus' life, he fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy concerning him. Every one of them. You know the likelihood of that happening by chance? <laughs> they asked a, a master in statistics, a guy named Peter Stoner, who was kind of, he kind of wrote the book on uh, statistics. They said, what is the likelihood of this just happening by chance? He said, well, if I were to take eight major prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, he said the likelihood of them happening by chance is one and 10 to the 17th power. Now, we don't even have a name for that number, okay? You could, you could start counting from the moment you could speak, and you wouldn't be able to count that high before you died, okay? That's how big of a number we're talking about. One and 10 to the 17th power. Imagine all those zeros laid out before you. So that's the likelihood of this happening by chance. He said, to illustrate it, imagine that you had a silver, one of those little half dollars, those little, uh, like a 50 cent piece. It said you could take those, if you took that number of 50 cent pieces and took them down to the state of Texas, you could cover the entire face of the state with 50 cent pieces. Two feet deep. (laughs) Now, if you've never been to Texas, and I have, so let me give you an illustration of this. When I was in college, one of my good friends lived in uh, McAllen, Texas, which is down near the southern point of Texas, and we decided to go visit uh, their home over a break. 
And so we drove from Wyoming, and I remember we reached Texas, and we're like, yay, we're in Texas. And he says, we got a long way to go. <laughs> we thought there was this sense of, oh, we're close. We still had 14 hours from the time we crossed the border till the time we got to McAllen, Texas, which isn't even on the coast. It's still about an hour and a half away from the coast. So I got a picture of just how big this state is. <laughs> we can drive the top to the bottom of Utah in maybe five and a half hours, but not Texas. You'd have to do that several times. So imagine that this state of Texas is covered in these coins two feet deep. Now imagine that you took one of those coins, I don't have a number, so one of those 10 to the 17th power, and you picked out a coin and you put a little mark on it, and you dropped it anywhere in Texas that you wanted. And then you blindfolded a person and said, you can walk as far as you want in any direction you want, but then you have to stop and pick up one coin what are the chances they would pick up that very coin? Those are the same odds as all these things, as eight prophecies coming true in one person by chance. But guess what? There's not eight prophecies that were fulfilled. There's over 300 prophecies, references, pictures. In other words, it's impossible that Jesus is not the Messiah, that he's not the fulfillment, that he's not the promised one. And you know the reason why all those things came true is because God the Father is divinely orchestrating all of the events. <laughs> from the lineage he came from, from the virgin birth, to even the fact that he would be betrayed. The fact that he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That's all prophesied. The fact that he would die by crucifixion before crucifixion was even invented. That's all prophesied. It's all there. There is no other explanation other than God is orchestrating all this. He's trying to let the world know here he is. Here he is. Here he is. <laughs> Jesus has given them incredible proof. Given them incredible proof. And finally, the last one he gives is the written word, the word of God. Verse 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are the things which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. For I do not receive honor from men. But I know you, and that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, him you will receive. But how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek honor that comes from only God? Do not think that I will accuse or do you do not think that I will accuse you to the Father for there is only one who accuses you it's Moses in whom you trust for if you believed Moses you would believe me for he wrote about me but if you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words He points to another evidence he said he's used the, father's, the Father now is his authentication. He's used the works that he's done. John the Baptist, now he comes to the written word of God. He said, this is what you guys search diligently day after day. And they knew the written word. But the problem is, though they read it, they did not receive it. There's a big difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. They knew the answers. And well, here's what they were doing. They were searching it, thinking, if I can just learn this and follow this, follow the law as closely as I can, if I could just memorize it and follow it, then I can achieve salvation. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, don't you get it? 
You're searching for salvation. But it's not found in works, it's found in a person. You want to know what the theme of the Bible is? Jesus Christ. If you look in the Old Testament, it's all about pointing to someone who is coming. The Gospels is all about someone is here. (laughs) The rest of the New Testament is, here's what he's done and he's coming back. The theme is consistent throughout all of it. Although there's over 39 authors over a period of 1,600 years, everything from shepherds to kings whom God used to write this book, it is all perfectly cohesive with the same message. (laughs) Isn't that incredible? Isn't that a testimony to God's sovereignty? But here's the problem. Though they knew God's word, they didn't receive it. And that's a danger for all of us. You know what knowledge does by itself? It can puff us up, (laughs) make us a prideful people. Boy, I know God's word backwards and forwards. Do you live it? That's what God's concerned about. (laughs) Who cares how much you have memorized if um, if it's not getting past your head and to your heart? That's what happened here with these religious leaders. You know, we have many identifiers today, like driver's licenses, birth certificates, social security cards, and there's times where you have to bring it all to prove your identity. Here's Jesus using written documentation to prove who he was. He says, I can tell that God's word is evident because you will not receive me. God's word has never penetrated your hearts. It's gotten stuck here and never reached here. You could, he could see it. Why were they so upset? Because he healed a man and he did it on the Sabbath and broke one of their rules. They were so, this is how far their legalism went. And this is what happens in legalistic religion without a relationship with Jesus Christ is it becomes all about me. I become arrogant. I become puffed up. And I become concerned about uh, my my own self-righteousness. And that's what happens. They were so concerned about their own rules and following them. They didn't care about other people. They didn't care about the hurting and the broken. And it surprised them when Jesus did. That's how far they'd fallen. That's, that's how much this, the word of God had yet to penetrate their hearts. See, they knew the written word, but they rejected the incarnate word, which was promised throughout. This is ultimately the reason that people do not embrace Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says. If you like to highlight, this is a great verse. verse it says, uh, verse 39, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these things testify of me. But you are not willing. Do you know the reason why people will spend eternity in hell? It's because they were not willing. It wasn't because of a lack of evidence. It wasn't because the offer of salvation was not genuinely made to them. It was because they chose to reject and continue in their unbelief. What was it that made these people so unwilling, these religious leaders? Well, they wanted to be recipients of glory and did not want to glorify Jesus Christ. It says, I do not receive honor from men. Verse 41. But I know you and that you do not have the love of God within you. Verse 44 it says, How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from God? They love to pat each other on the back and say, You know what? You are so righteous. Look how well you are following the law. And that's what it was about. It was about this big competition. Jesus described the hypocrites speaking of these very people, the people who loved 
to do big things and receive glory for it. When they gave, they wanted everyone to see how much they were giving. When they prayed, they prayed loudly on the street corner so everyone heard how eloquent their prayer was. They were all about the outward. They loved to receive glory from men. But as you look at the gospel, it strips us of any glory whatsoever. For by grace you are saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves. (laughs) Remember how Nicodemus had a hard time with that? You mean everything I've been doing was all for naught? Jesus telling them the same thing. This is really why you don't want to come to me. You don't want to give up glory. But in the, the true gospel, all glory goes to Jesus Christ. And he takes his heel and puts it on our pride. And until we come humbly, we're never going to come. Right? We're never going to be willing. That was ultimately what was hindering them. And remember that. It's not going to be the fact that you have the best arguments, the most solid evidence and you're able to convince people to Christ, it's going to be their hearts softening and becoming willing to embrace Him. (laughs) So pray for hearts. And guess what? Take comfort when you're rejected. It wasn't because, oh man, if I'd only said it this way, they certainly would have come to Christ. That's us taking the responsibility of winning people to Christ and convincing them on our own. This is a work that God does in our hearts. He just asks us to be faithful witnesses, to simply declare the truth. They wanted to be lifted up rather than Christ. In fact, he even says to them, you'll receive many others. And throughout history, they, they did receive many false messiahs. And guess what? There's coming a day during the tribulation period where they will receive another one, the Antichrist, for a period of time. They're constantly deceived because they rejected the true messiah. So every messiah that claims to be so coming after is going to be a false one. But they missed him despite all the evidence. Finally, they were rejecting the testimony of Moses. Moses was very near and dear to them. They loved Moses. (laughs) And so this is where Jesus hits them right where they're at. They said, do you think I'm going to be the one testifying against you in heaven? (laughs) That you had every opportunity, that you had the truth, it's going to be Moses. Guess what? Moses was the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. In it, there's the Abrahamic covenant which promised that through Abraham's seed would come this Messiah. Moses wrote about it. He says, here you are claiming to be disciples and followers of Moses. Moses is going to say, hey, he was right here in front of you. I told you to look for him. You had the evidence. But you rejected him. Jesus, is in, in teaching and the apostles, there are over 50 references to the Old Testament in the book of Romans alone. The connection between the Old Testament and New Testament is clear. Jesus often quoted the Old Testament in his teaching. They could see, they could connect the dots. They knew God's word, but they missed the point. My daughter Taylor, (laughs) my daughter Taylor, I remember we were seeking to instruct her in regards to sharing. Because this, as we know, it is not a concept that comes naturally to our children. If it did, bless their little hearts, but I, I didn't have one of those children. But here we are with Taylor, our very first one, and we're trying to teach her. She's an only child, used to being, um, receiving all of her attention, trying to teach her this concept of sharing. So I'm explaining it to her. And she grasps onto it and gets excited. But what she thought is that what that meant is everyone must share with her. <laughs> She's like, yeah, sharing. This sounds great, share. So she chased other kids around saying, share, share. They'd come to her and she'd go, oh no. <laughs> no, you don't. She missed the point. (laughs) 
of what we were trying to teach her. And sadly, so had much of Israel and these religious leaders. They'd missed it. They'd missed it. And he said, Moses one day will stand before you and say, I told you. <laughs> I told you. I gave you clear evidence, and this is him. You know, as we look at this, despite all the evidence, despite the overwhelming evidence that backs up every claim. And by the way, Jesus had to back up every claim. If he had, if he had fulfilled every claim and then failed to rise from the dead, we could dismiss him as a false messiah. <laughs> but he fulfilled every claim even unto his death and resurrection, which proved once and for all that he was God. The father could have left, said, no, you're going to stay dead because you're a false messiah. <laughs> but he didn't. He raised from the dead, proving once and for all the Father says what he's saying is right. <laughs> you can trust him. I pray this morning, if you have never realized who Jesus is, that you will examine the evidence. That he is who he says he is, God in the flesh. But he stated his purpose in Matthew 20, 28. That I did not come to planet earth to be served. I came here to serve and to give my life as a ransom payment. And whoever would believe in me, put their faith in me alone, my sacrifice on the cross for their sin, will have everlasting life, will experience forgiveness of sin. And this morning, right where you sit, I want you to understand that death that he died on the cross was for you and for your sin. There's two types of people in this world. Those who have said, I believe Jesus is who he says he is, and I have put my faith in what he has done. And those who said, no, no. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And they reject him. God's word says those who reject him are judged already by their own sin. But those who believe will have everlasting life. How about life in heaven with him for eternity? What an incredible gift. I, I was looking up as I, as I looked at all this evidence. It was really overwhelming. And it just got me thinking, what are, this is kind of an open and shut case. You've heard that term before. <laughs> That means the evidence is so clear that it really doesn't require a trial or a jury. The judge can make his judgment because the evidence is so clearly there. I read a story about one such case, and it was uh, involving a bank robber. He decided that he was going to go into a bank and rob it, but he, he went in kind of a busier time of the day, so he didn't wear a mask because he didn't want to tip people off. So he went into that bank, uh, not really dressed up in typical bank robber garb, and he sat down, and the bank was pretty full, so he thought, you know what, I'm going to sit here and uh, pretend to be filling out these deposit slips while I wait for the bank to empty out. And so he did that. And once the bank had kind of emptied out, he went up to the teller and confronted her and said, and demanded all the cash. Well, because he was not wearing a disguise, his mug was caught on camera there, and it was very clear. And then he took the cash and left. <laughs> well, he made a huge mistake. Not only was his face caught on camera, while he was passing the time pretending to fill out deposit slips, he was actually filling out deposit slips. He actually put his name and his address because he wanted it to look real, and he put his information down and left it on a deposit slip. So they wouldn't said, you got to look at this. Do you think this is... He wouldn't really give us his home address, his name. He wouldn't really put his social security number down on this, would he? <laughs> sure enough, he had. <laughs> When they picked him up, he denied it. <laughs> but they recovered the cash. They had his fingerprints. They had his picture. And they had in his own handwriting 
all of his information. When it came to the judge, it was the easiest case, probably one of the easiest cases that ever came across, came through his courtroom, and he charged him. That it's clear, this is our guy. Jesus laid out such, <laughs> such a strong, um, so much evidence that was so clear, it should have been just as easy for them to say, okay, now we get it. We see who you are. But their hearts were not willing. It's a great reminder to us as we pray for and we reach out to our world, we need to pray for their hearts. Pray for their hearts. Not pray, Lord, give me the evidence so that I can... I'm going to win them with the wisdom of my own. Jesus had a perfect case. He laid it out clearly, and they still rejected. <laughs> but, but some would believe, such as Nicodemus and others. It's a great reminder to us to be, in, to be prayerful uh, for the lost around us and pray that God would do a work in their hearts. And when he gives us the opportunity, be a faithful witness like John the Baptist and say, here's who he is and what he's done. You going to believe it? <laughs> Let God do the work. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that today we can stand knowing that we are in eternally secure in your hands because Jesus backed up every claim. Lord, as we look at the promises that have been fulfilled, I pray that it would give us faith to bank our lives upon the ones that are still yet to be fulfilled. We pray that we would trust you even when it looks... Uh, discouraging, Lord, even when it looks like nothing's happening, Lord, we can walk by faith because we can see your faithfulness so clearly in your word. We thank you for the living proof. We can know that Jesus was the promised Messiah and that what he did for us on the cross paid for our sin. I want to pray right now for the person who's wrestling with this in this room. Whoever they are, Lord, you know the hearts. I pray that they would recognize this morning that Jesus came to die for their sin. Your word had already said our sin separated us from you and must be punished in hell for eternity. But Jesus came to take our punishment on his own shoulders as he was crucified on a cross. But then he rose from the grave showing that he had power over sin and that he had conquered it. And now through trusting in him, through faith, we can experience total forgiveness of our sin and be assured of eternal life in heaven for all of eternity. Lord, I pray that this morning someone would come to you and say, Lord, I, I see my sin and I see why Jesus had to come and die. And this morning, I'm trusting in Jesus and in Jesus alone to save me. Lord, we know as we come in simple faith, you will always receive us. May today be the day of salvation for some. Lord, for those of us who know you, um, may we walk by faith, clinging to every promise, banking our lives upon, upon it because you are a faithful God and you've shown it time and time again. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can stand this morning and you are dismissed.